Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Hello and welcome back to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. It is Thursday, January 12th, 2023. I did it. I did it. I said 2023, not 2022, not 2020, not 20 anything else. But hey, little victories, you take them where you can get them. Mark Daly and Mark Hamilton here to bring you the latest news from the Formula One world. Hammy, how are you, my friend? That's that's a big smile for a Thursday night. Are you, are you ready to get the weekend started here? You know, I'm happy for Lewis Hamilton. Congratulations, Sir Lewis Hamilton, on your 38th birthday. I am ready to celebrate that. And I'm also ready to celebrate the fact that the weekend is here. And I'm one week away from a trip to Toronto to see my favorite NBA team play the Celtics. And of course, two weeks away from a fun trip to Portland, maybe be able to see some of our listeners when we're down there. But yeah, dude, I'm in a good mood. And this is the off season that just keeps on giving. I was sitting here earlier today as I was kind of putting together the outline for tonight's show. And I was just, I don't recall, at least in the modern history. So when I say modern history, I mean like maybe post-2014, but I don't remember an off-season that had so much to give to us. It's been uh, it's been an exciting ride and we've got a ton of stuff to talk about tonight. And we'll be back on Sunday. So we're going to record a show on Sunday. Uh, kind of a, a combination Wait, of a I know I haven't <laughs> told you. We'll do a mini show and a mailbag show because we've got so much content. And then, of course, we are literally on the cusp of the car reveals as well, just weeks away, almost at the point where we're hours away at this point. But the season's going to come so fast, man. Dude, how the heck are you? I'm doing good, man. Much like yourself, I'm looking forward to getting the weekend started. You know, it, it is Thursday night and Friday. Not such a bad day at work. So looking forward to to getting through that and just cruising on into a couple of days of what I'm hoping is going to be a little R&R. But uh, we'll see. We'll see. There's Weekends around here tend to be busier than the week itself, which is busy enough. But anyways, at least, uh, at least not on the clock, having to run from one thing to another. But it's all good. But just talking about some of those things. So according to your timeline here, 45 days until winter testing begins, 47 days until season five of uh, Netflix's Drive to Survive drops, 55 days until the first Grand Prix of the year in Bahrain. So it's ticking down nicely. So car launches, Williams says confirmed for Feb 6, AlphaTauri Feb 11, uh, McLaren Feb 13th, Aston Martin February 14th, Ferrari February, sorry, McLaren February 13th, Ferrari February 14th, Mercedes February 15th, and Alpine February 16th. Those days are, are dates are going to come up uh, really, really quick. It's exciting, man. And it, it's fun, too, because sometimes you see some kind of like a, a lot of speculation of what the what, what the cars might look like. But it's it's always cool to get that first one. And then after they're all done, it's like, OK, let's just uh, let's let's just do this thing. Let's get the season started. But it's, it's going to come fast. Looking forward to hey. it. 
I should add as well that one of the questions that's popped up quite a lot recently is whether you and I are going to sit down and do the power rankings of our first impressions of the car and the, and the livery. And I think, you know, I, I'd completely forgotten that we did that last year, but the reception yes. seems to have been so strong and so many people have been asking for it that I think as soon yeah. as we get through that 10th car reveal, I think we jump on the, the podcast and uh, do our power rankings of our first impressions of the cars and the liveries. Is that what we did, like our bracket, like our, our March Madness bracket, or was that the year before? I maybe can't we remember. Did it both now. years? You know, it's funny. I think maybe we did it both years. I think we did. I know we've uh, we've done something, but doing the bracket, like uh, you know, March Madness, is kind of sad, you know, very timely and very uh, applicable. So we'll do that again. That's that's always fun. And are are we going to binge watch the whole season of Drive to Survive when it drops on I Friday? I can't do that again. <laughs> I, I I did I did it last year, man. Well, actually, it's so funny. So the last two years where we've actually come on and done our review of the Drive to Survive series that just dropped, I hadn't finished it either year. I think I revealed this too later, but I was I was winging it. I, I can't do 10 hours of tv in a single weekend man it's just not my style oh man it's just like did you uh, do you even netflix bro <laughs> it's just, well. that's what you're not supposed well. to not well it takes not me well. an eternity to get get through any so i am like i am the viewer of broken tv series i start many shows i get through the pilot i'm like i will get back to that i never do so i started strange thing was it stranger things strange things yes the netflix show. stranger things which one yeah stranger things i started stranger things. season yep. one in november of 2016 i watched the first four episodes this show is great i can't wait to finish it six years later i haven't actually gone back so that is how i <laughs> consume my tv in bits in bits and pieces by the way i should mention as well uh Thank you to Sam Cooper of Planet F1. He made time for us, came to the Scuderia F1 Virtual Podcast Studios last weekend. We recorded a great podcast and dropped it on Monday. Highly, highly recommend you guys check that one out. And just a couple of other news things I want to hit before we move on here. Uh, big news in the world of Formula One content creators. Matt and Tommy from WTF1 are leaving. Apparently, they made an announcement earlier this week that they're departing WTF1. I didn't realize this, but apparently Tommy had um, some principal ownership stake in it because, of course, it was his baby. He brought it to fruition a decade ago, but he'd sold it on some time ago. So they've officially handed the baton on to some new talent over there. Um, and it's suggested, it's implied somebody has done some deep dive, but it looks like Matt and Tommy are probably going to go off and start their own new F1 project. But of course, that's sad to see. Hopefully they'll take Katie with them. Um, and then the other big one that I definitely wanted to mention today, because this is super exciting. You and I have a really cool podcast coming up on February 19th. We'll be interviewing mm -hmm. Elizabeth Blackstock and Alanis King, who of course are fantastic motorsports and auto Motive journalists and writers. Also, they have their own uh, F1 show, the Donut Racing F1 show, which is doing really, really well. They'll be joining us on February 19th to do a discussion and a conversation about their Rich Energy Haas book, which is absolutely banging on the charts right now. And we are also going to be giving away three copies of that book. So the contest is live now. If you want to go and find us on Twitter at F1, actually, what is our Twitter handle? At Skidaria F1 Pod. Uh, we have pinned it to the top. You can find it. The contest entry is really simple. You just need to follow a couple of folks on Twitter, like the post, retweet the post, and you're good. But we are going to be drawing those winners with Alanis and Elizabeth on February 19th. So super excited that we we were able to do another contest. We didn't do any in the holiday season this year, which was a big miss. And I think a lot of people were pretty sad about that. But uh, hopefully this is a uh, 
hopefully this makes some amends for the fact that we weren't able to deliver anything fun in November and 20th this year. It is applicable that, or very, uh, what, I guess applicable is the right word, that we are going to sit down with with uh, with Elizabeth and Alanis and talk about Rich Energy because they are, Rich Energy is to Formula One sponsorship what this podcast is to Formula One podcast. So, you know, there's a lot of <laughs> similarity between the two, but no, we actually did think we we actually, this, this podcast is available. I still have no idea if and where and if it's even possible to buy a container a bottle a can a pouch crystals whatever it is you know and you know a powdered uh, mix and put it into uh, a glass of water and, and bake rich energy drink because i don't know if it's it's even actually physically existing somewhere my friend i don't know if i ever told you this but i i tried very hard the last couple of years to get two cans because i wanted us to do a live taste test on the air so you know what what we could do is like i'll blindfold you or i'll give you two cans that are shrouded in paper one's red bull one's rich energy you know what let you try to guess which one is which, and then you can kind of describe the flavor, and then I would do the same thing. I think it would make a fantastic podcast segment. I just can't find the stuff anywhere. It's like it's <laughs> never existed. Uh, it's like unicorns or you know other mythical yeah, creatures totally, or something. Totally. If, maybe that's what it is. Maybe you have to go into the Enchanted Forest and look for the unicorn yeah. drinking a can of rich energy drink. Maybe that's, that's what it is. It's a okay. Narnia, baby. <laughs> that's what it is uh, mr tumness has the can of uh, rich energy yeah, drink yeah. so <laughs> love it okay so this one we, we just you started off the top of the show wishing sir lewis a happy 38th birthday four things that are probably going to make lewis who all seems pretty happy most of the times would be slightly less happier four incidents that cost lewis four world championships Going back to 2007, lost 10 points in China, and he only needed two points to, to win the world championship that year. In 2010, in Spain, he uh, crashed out, and that cost him 18 points. He only needed 16 points that year to claim the world championship. 2016 had that big engine failure in uh, Malaysia that cost him 25 points because he was uh, leading the race at the time, of course. Only needed six points to take the, the world championship away from uh, Nico Rosberg, and that was the one and only title that he won, and he, you know, promptly retired like what a as week later as he could. like i'm out yeah I'm out. oh yeah he pulled the plug is is in record time i don't think and i've by ever the way, seen for that. a guy that's yeah. retired i swear he spends more time in the paddock now than he did when he was racing <laughs> so it's a pretty weak know, sauce right? retirement yeah yeah no no kidding right and then finally the one that we're all familiar with which is uh you know going to make a lot of people very unhappy is the uh in well if, if, if the restart year at a 21 yeah. yeah yeah so when uh, he had that incident in azerbaijan cost him 25 points and of course he only needed 20 sorry nine points to take the championship from max but could you imagine i mean if he had claimed all those world championships like unreal. i mean unreal oh, man unreal he would be like what uh an 11 time world champion 10 <laughs> you gotta like lose lose count it is absolutely 2016 i think Yep. I think I've told you this story as well, but back in 2016, I, I wasn't able to watch Malaysia live. I think we, my wife and I were watching it off the PVR later. And so I was staying off social media and all that kind of stuff all day. And at some point, for some reason, just like out of muscle mm. memory, I brought my phone up and I went to the BBC website and the photo was a 
Mercedes with fire coming out of the back of it. And I knew instantly <laughs> it was an engine failure and I knew it was Lewis. So in that moment, so I went and watched the race. And of course, that was that was exactly what had happened. It was a catastrophic engine failure, which was so, so, so unlikely because those Mercedes power units had been rock solid in 14, 15, yep. and 16. And of course, the race still went down to the final race in Abu Dhabi. But that point spread was just too great at that point. And had he won that race, to your point, he probably would have, likely would have won the championship does nico retire like the entire landscape of formula one is maybe different in 2021 that was the race of course where max had that really unfortunate super scary tire failure at high speed on that main straight and there was that subsequent restart and lewis had made a unforced driver error in the management of his brakes and on that restart went straight through turn one and he was possibly going to take the lead at turn one maybe keep it through lead to turn two, but that possibly 25 points, 15 points, 18 points, like that could have been the difference in the 2021 championship yep. too. So there's these ever so fine margins in terms of driver execution, but also the reliability of the car, which goes back to the factory and the mechanics and, and the stresses on the engine over the course of a season. Yeah, it, it really is incredible. Like, and uh, shout if out you just... courtesy Finley58 on Reddit for compiling that list. We pulled yep. that off of Reddit a couple of days yeah, ago. Yeah, 100%. So the next one, because you're a stats guy, I'm a stats guy too, but I just don't understand this next stat that you have here also from uh, that you found on Reddit from Bents1239. So this is F1 World Championships per 10 million people. So I'm not quite sure what I'm looking at here. So maybe you can kind of like tell me what's going on. I was going to rely on your superior intellect to uh, <laughs> to interpret this, but this is a, a neat chart, and the chart is labeled is. Yeah. F1 World Championships per 10 million people. And to put this into context, Canada has scored 0.26 World Championships. Of course, we have one in 1997, but 0.26 for our population of just shy of 40 million. The US has 0.03, so we have a better... I don't even know what to call this, a better championships to population index than the U.S. does. Brazil, (laughs) 0.37. Argentina, 1.09. Australia, 1.95. South Africa, 0.17. And I think I'm going to have to zoom in here so I can see some of these European countries. Uh, UK, 2.97. France, Mm 0.59. Germany, 1.44. That's surprisingly low considering the number of championships they've secured. Uh, Spain, 0.42. All Fernando Alonso. And then there's a particular Scandinavian country at the top of the map that I don't think I even need to mention that has 7.39 championships per 10 million people, which is, and I think you can all guess what country that is, which is absolutely absurd. I know, but uh, I'm going to give you a geography test now. Which is the the, the Central European country that has a, a championship per 10 million people index ratio, or whatever you called it, at 4.46? Hold on. You can I'm zoom to, in. Take your time. I'm trying I'll, to zoom in. Hold on. Hold uh, on. I can't. <laughs> I'll I can't the zoom Jeopardy in that far. music. You can't. You can't zoom in that far. Tell okay, me. Tell that, me. That, that, that's just. I, I'm just, I'm no, I, I want you to do it because, oh you know. You're the worst <laughs> co-host ever. No, it, it's hungry, isn't it? Is, isn't that hungry? I can't quite tell because Hold I on. can't zoom in either. Is it a landlocked it's, country? Uh, because if it's a landlocked country, it's definitely yes. hungry. Yeah, so it's hungry. Yes, yeah, yeah, it is hungry. But also then I'm going to put you on the spot here. So who are the, uh, the American uh, world champions and who is the uh, South African world champion? 
Uh, so the American champion would be an Andretti, of course. Mm-hmm. And yep. the South African champion would be a Schechter, Mr. Jody. Yes, Schechter. Yeah. But but did did Phil Hill not win the world championship for Ferrari way back in the 1960s? He was an American too, was he not? I'm, I'm but I just can't remember if he, yeah, he was, was definitely uh, world American. Champ- but and yep. we're so, such terrible hosts. But hold on, let me let me Google this F1 world champions. Yes, he was. He was. Uh, he, he, so you were correct, Mario Andretti was one. Phil Hill indeed was the other one. I'm just trying to p- pull right. up the year that he was. So he was a Formula One World Champion in 1961. 1961. So there you go. So here we go, dropping knowledge all over the place here. So we're learning. Uh, we're learning. <laughs> we're, we're learning, and we're passing it on as we go. So this by the next way, that here, Phil Hill championship, he's he secured the championship in the seventh race of the season which seems incredible. It was an eight-race championship, which just shows you how much the sport has grown since that time. Oh, I know, right? But uh, that uh, segues nicely into this uh, next one here, courtesy of uh, Space Giraffe 2000. So this is, uh, so everybody knows, well, not everybody knows, but uh, Hermann Tilke and his company have designed a heck of a lot of uh, Formula One tracks. So going back to 1999, there were 16 tracks and 16 races on the calendar that year. So there was one Tilke designed track, and that was uh, Sepang in Malaysia, which uh, stuck on the uh, calendar until just a couple of years ago. Still they one of the off. best tracks on the planet, my friend. Super, yeah. super. Like it, it was yeah. built for modern F1. Like I was watching earlier today a Chain Bear video because I, I wanted to do a little prep for this. And I didn't realize how wide it was. To give you, to give you some context, at its widest, Sepang is 20 meters wide. At its narrowest, it's 16 meters wide. Silverstone, which is generally regarded as a pretty wide track, at its widest mm-hmm. is 15 meters. Like Huh. Sing- like Malaysia was just a phenomenal, phenomenal track that brought the sport yep. into the 21st century. And it's such a shame. And I get it from an economics perspective why they no longer want to pay that sanctioning fee. But yeah, I miss that track. Yeah. I think oh, most yeah. people do. Yes, yes, so do I. Yeah, so they were the, so Malaysia was the first Tilka track added. And that stayed that way until 2004, where they added Sakhir and uh, Shanghai. So that brought it up to three of uh, 18 tracks. Then Turkey came online the year after to, to bring that up to four of 19 or 21% of the uh, the tracks on the calendar were designed by Tilka. Then fast forward to 2008, you had Marina Bay in Singapore and Valencia in Spain. So that bumped it to six out of 18 races for 33%. Then you had uh, Yas Marina, which has been on the, uh, the, the calendar ever since in 2009. Then we added Korea, India. Coda uh, in 2012, which meant in 2012, we had, we we're up to 20 races, nine out of 20 races at that point were designed by Tilka. And we should mention at that point that uh, Istanbul, uh, that dropped off uh, the, the calendar there. Then in 2014, we added uh, Sochi in, uh, in Russia. That was Ooh. seven out of 19 races, but we lost Korea and we lost uh, India. Then it kept going. That 2060, we added uh, Baku City. That brought it up to 8 out of 21 or 38%. And it kind of keeps going that way. But in 2021, 5 out of the 17 races, or 20, 29%, uh, were Tilka-designed uh, tracks. We had uh, Turkey, uh, the Outer Ring at uh, Bahrain, Singapore, Kota, uh, Azerbaijan, and Shanghai. 
Then the last uh, in 2021, seven out of 22, and 2022 was uh, Marina Bay. And then 2023, seven out of 22 races will be uh, Tilka Design tracks. And this will see the uh, debut of Las Vegas, which is, uh, that's an amazing stat. To say that that these people have a monopoly on the design of Formula One tracks in the past uh, two plus decades, almost a quarter of a century is uh, really, really crazy <laughs> that's that's a, a very very uh massive number okay we're gonna take a, a real well no before we go in there it, it seems that uh, seems that uh, joe guan yu is uh rubbing shoulders and doing some uh, some things here he's uh done a photo shoot uh, for dior so uh joe looking uh he's looking pretty sharp i, I must like say him. he's got a good i like the cut yeah. of his i like joe guan yu he's one yeah, of my me too I, I yeah. really, really am rooting for him and his success, and yeah. I, I hope he does great things for the sport in in China. And even yeah. if we're, even if China's not back on the calendar this year, I, I think we can be pretty confident it will be next year. And I just, I can't, cannot wait to see how that crowd in Shanghai reacts to a Chinese driver on the grid. I think it's going to be a pretty cool moment. Oh yeah, I mean he would be. Uh, I, I would think he'd be treated like a rock star, and, uh, yeah. and rightly so. He goes cheer, cheer cheer for the home team, or in this case, the uh, the, the the home driver. Anyways, uh, Hammy, let's take a quick break here. Jump into the mailbag on the other side, and then we got lots and lots of news to to talk about. So we'll do that in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights and more. Whether you're into speed, power or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. All right. Welcome back to the show. Mike's unmuted. Coffee's locked and loaded. We've got the news feed already here. So the first one here, and I should uh, enlarge this a little bit so I can read it uh, properly. going to dive into the uh, the mailbag, and I overshot it here on my my notes. So this is uh, just uh, building off of what we were talking about last week, just the uh, the, the whole, um, you know, the, the, the FIA uh, banning uh, personal statements and things like that in Formula One. So we've got a really good 
day email from uh, Jen Swafford. And Jen had to say, hey, happy new year, and I hope all is well. I think both you guys have been sick semi-recently, and I hope you're feeling better. I wanted to reply to your recent show when you talked about the FIA ban on political statements. I don't disagree with anything you said, and I agree it is a complex issue. But I don't believe it can be discussed completely without bringing up the fact that this ban came about only after Seb retired. In the discussion about driver activists, Seb and Lewis are always the drivers that are named. Is it coincidence that the ban came about when Lewis was going to be the only one left? I'm not suggesting that this is some huge conspiracy or overt racism. But when you consider the jewelry ban, another ban that affects only Lewis, you have to consider what is going on. Political activism exists because ideas, beliefs, and behaviors of a minority are being suppressed by the majority. So it is just kind of tiresome that the FIA is behaving like so many other corporations slash organizations, protecting their sponsors, silencing the detractors, and, as happens so often in our society, certain minority groups are always affected more than others. Of course, I also completely understand that this is a private business, and they can run it however they want. I will always stop short of crying censorship, because I understand this is actually not the same thing as suppressing free speech. Interestingly, I got into F1 at a time when it really hit me as a progressive slash liberal enterprise circa 2020, but I have learned since that that I was seeing it in a way precisely because of Lewis and Seb, and I can turn around and see it from the standpoint of someone who disagrees with their ways of thinking. After all, one reason I've never gotten into NASCAR is that the whole scene feels a little too confederate to me, and I wouldn't want any new or old fans to avoid F1 for similar reasons. So in a way, I definitely understand the desire to remove politics from the grid. But you have to know that when Lewis heard about the FIA's newest ban on something that he has been deeply involved in when he's the only one left involved in it, he must have rolled his eyes and said, of course they did. That's a great email. And, you know, honestly, I don't have anything further to add to it because I think Jen summed up everything nicely, a lot more succinctly and a lot better than I think, uh, you know, I could have. I don't know if uh, you have anything to to add to it, but I think uh, she's uh, spot on. Yeah, I just want to say thanks, Jen, for the email. Super, super appreciate it. And Jen reached out shortly after the show via DM. So we had a quick conversation and she was able to articulate her thoughts beautifully. The only thing that I, I would add and I think is really important here is we do it sometimes, me especially. And I think the Formula One community tends to do it, but we demonize the FIA for some of the decisions that they make and some of the the ways that they behave as kind of a, a governing body of the sport. Um, and some of it certainly deserve it. But I, I think in this case, this is probably something that was decided amongst all of the parties, the teams, the commercial rights holder in Liberty FOM and the FIA. If this was if this was a, a decision that was made in isolation of the teams and an FOM, I think that those bodies would probably have vocalized it by now. But I strongly mm-hmm. believe that this is probably something that was put forward by the teams. Um, FIA President Mohammed bin Salam did actually double down on this week. Um, Luke Smith had a really good article on motorsport.com, and he has some quotes from uh, Ben Salam here, which I'll quickly read. Um, he says, and I quote, I'm a big believer in the sport. We are concerned with building bridges. You can use sport for peace reasons on all of this, but one thing we don't want is to have the FIA as a platform for private personal agenda. We will 
we will divert from the sport. What does the driver do best driving? They are so good at it and they make the business, they make the show there, the stars, nobody's stopping them. There are other platforms to express what they want. Everybody has this and they are most welcome to go through the process of the FIA to go through that. Um, he continued, we just want our sport to be quote unquote clean, um, et cetera, et cetera. And he goes on, the FIA should be neutral, I believe, and we need the superstars in it to make the sport. And they do such a great job when it comes to the competition that all of us enjoy. So of course, I, we discussed this, but the International Sporting Code had been updated, basically saying any sort of expression related to religion or or politics or any personal issues have to be approved by the FIA. And like you and I said last week, like I, I've never taken exception to the fact that these drivers have brought their causes to the forefront and leveraged their platform to the best of their ability, I think, and they should be commended for doing so. Ultimately, this is a business and the business is reacting um, to the fact that this has been happening. And to Jen's point, I think the departure of Seb made it easier for them to clamp down on something that they probably had wanted to do for some time. I'm just going to be really curious to see how the FIA ultimately executes on this because it's going to be very hard to govern. For instance, they will not allow religious expression. And we have drivers on the grid that wear a cross and that they that they they make religious gestures before a Grand Prix. And, and ultimately, the drivers have the freedom to wear helmets that they design of their, of their choice with, with graphics and with symbols that are important to them. So is the FIA going to now have to approve helmet designs? And I just I think this is going to be a very complex issue for them to govern, and it's going to create quite a bit of friction. And it's probably not something that needed to be addressed to be totally honest, that we probably mm -hmm. could have proceeded as we were because I don't think it was necessarily that disruptive to the sport. But again, the commercial rights holders, the teams and the FIA disagree. Uh, so hopefully there'll be some, some common ground here, but I would like to see what their approval process is when drivers do bring causes to them. And I would like to see how they govern situations where drivers do things that are in conflict with the sporting code. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, and uh, I think that this is going to be a discussion one way or another uh, m uh, moving forward. But sticking with uh, Mohammed uh, Ben Suleim, uh, he's uh, had other comments uh, to make uh, this week. I mean, talk about the the, the news that just uh, keeps on giving uh, this season. The the, the latest one uh, builds on the announcement last week from um, Andretti and Cadillac uh, to um, launch a bid to try uh, and get into Formula One. And uh, th there's been quite a negative and, well, I would say, think a, a lukewarm reaction would probably the best way or the, the the best reaction or the best way to describe the reaction to the announcement and um ben sulem uh, took to twitter and uh, he had the the following to say quote it's so surprising that there's been some adverse uh, reaction to the cadillac and andretti news the FIA has accepted entries of smaller successful organizations in recent years. We should be encouraging prospective F1 entries from global manufacturers like GM and thoroughbred racer like Andretti and others. Interest from teams and growth markets adds diversity and broadens F1's appeal. End quote. So that is uh, quite interesting. So, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll talk about this more because there's uh, there's plenty of quotes and plenty of uh, stories uh, out there. But apparently, some unnamed 
uh, source told uh, Reuters News uh, that uh, there's a strong majority of the uh, Formula One teams that are against expanding the grid and diluting the well, diluting the 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 the, the prize money and the revenues and all that stuff. And uh, this uh, same unnamed source said that uh, the, I guess the the majority or the, the the opinion of the majority is that this uh, Cadillac or GM involvement is just a, a badging, a sponsorship uh, exercise. Very much, I, I guess the best way we could look at it right now is maybe the agreement that uh, Sauber has with Alfa yeah. Romeo. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, the only thing Alfa Romeo on that car is the branding and the color scheme and 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 nothing more. So I guess that's the real uh, concern there. I mean, going back to uh, some comments made by Mercedes team principal Total Wolf last year at the uh, the Miami Grand Prix he said quote the value of Formula One is that it's limited to amount of franchises and we don't want to dilute that uh, value by just adding teams end quote I mean you kind of read uh, between the lines on that one it's, it, it seems like Toto is um, to me it seems like he's just against it period and also when he says by just adding teams it's just like you know, to me, that kind of suggests like any entry or any application be like, oh, yeah, you got the money or whatever. OK, you're in. It's like kind of su- suggests to me that uh, Toto feels like that uh, there, there's no vetting process and it just be like somebody comes up and they, yeah, they, they automatically would be accepted. Maybe maybe I'm reading a little bit uh, too much into that, but I don't know, Hemi, this uh, I'm sort of kind of not surprised by this whole reaction because remember last season Andretti did try to garner support by wandering around the paddock and and uh, was kind of really brushed off by everybody except Renault. This is a, a topic I think that you and I will be discussing quite a bit and we've been discussing really since the Sauber the Sauber attempted purchase some time ago but I I think yep. that there is and, and I'm going to quote here from Andrew Benson and of course Andrew Benson, chief F1 writer for the BBC, and sometimes is criticized for being a little bit hyperbolic, but he writes this week that there is a storm brewing in Formula One, and that is a storm between the FOM, the Liberty Group, and the FIA itself. And, you know, he he makes some really, really good points. And I, I just I think it's important to understand how complicated the situation is getting right now. The FIA largely in isolation of Liberty and the teams. And ultimately, the teams don't get a say, but the FOM, Liberty, is going to act on behalf of the teams because they're so partnered into the financial considerations of the sport. But ultimately, Mohammed bin Salam had put out that tweet and that that comment recently that they were going to start ingesting expressions of interest to expand the grid. And I don't think that Liberty, and I certainly don't think the teams were on board with that. And I think it just reinforced the fact that there's some discord here between the FIA and between Formula One. And I think where this gets really messy is the fact that the FIA's role here is to be a unbiased, independent arbiter of the bids that come forward. And ultimately, Liberty and the FIA will ultimately have to sign off. But the fact that Mohammed bin Salam is advocating openly on behalf of the Andretti bid using his own personal social media platforms is not appropriate for the presidents of the FIA. That's a really, really <laughs> bad look. And, and ultimately, we're yep. saying that there's been a negative reaction. In fact, 
That's what Mohammed bin Salem said this week. And he says again, quote, it is surprising that there's been some adverse reaction to the Cadillac and Andretti news. The FIA has accepted the entries of smaller successful organizations in recent years, blah, 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 blah. It's not that there's been an adverse reaction. It's that there's been no reaction from Liberty and from the teams, because ultimately, I think they're very much at their wits end with the Andretti piece. Like you made a really good comment a couple of minutes ago that back in Miami, this is a guy who's marching around the paddock, followed by cameras and a blank piece of paper, trying to get team principals to sign a commitment to adding him to the grid. And I just, I don't think that's how the the sport operates. And I think Stefano Domenicali, the CEO of Formula One, I think he was infuriated by this. And I don't think the teams and I don't think Formula One have really appreciated the way that he's allowed this entire bid process to play out in public view. What I know, what I know and what I've been told for a fact is that there are other viable candidates working on entries to Formula One. And we know nothing about them because they are negotiating in privacy in the back room, doing the deals with their lawyers present. Whereas Andretti's letting this play out in public and constantly holding press conferences and constantly being marched in front of the cameras. And ultimately, I want an American team in Formula One. I desperately do. And I totally agree. It's great for the sport. And I think the fact that this isn't playing out favorably for the Andretti group is probably upsetting an awful lot of American American viewers and American fans of Formula One because I think they're frustrated. Like, what else does this guy need to do to get on the grid, right? Like he was told or we're told that he was told that if you want your bid to be taken seriously, you need to partner with an OEM. And so he comes back with General Motors and he comes back with Cadillac. And ultimately that may not necessarily be enough. And to your point, I think what we're being told this week by some leaks and by some comments that are coming out of the paddock is that the grid themselves, the Formula One teams, don't believe that this is a real works team, that this is nothing but a badging exercise. We know for a fact, we all know, that if the Andretti team hit the grid in 2024, 2025, which is wholly unrealistic, they need to hire 600 people, build two and a half factories, and get ready to compete in Formula One. But if they were to come on the grid, there would be a Renault engine in that car that's badged as a Cadillac engine. And I think that in itself is also really starting to annoy teams on the grid who are starting to become very skeptical of this badging exercise for manufacturers. And I think what we see with Alfa Romeo, maybe the last time that we ever see this, that teams like Mercedes and teams like Ferrari, who are themselves true works team and are funneling hundreds of millions of dollars into developing their power units, probably don't look kindly on the fact that a team like Cadillac can come in, throw $20 million at Andretti, buy Sorento engines and badge them at Cadillac and get all the exposure to the global to the global community as if they are a true works team in Formula One. And I think that's probably not going over well. And I think the bigger issue here, and this is something that Toto and the other teams have continued to say is, look, we're open to a team coming to the grid, but they need to bring value to the sport, financial value to the sport in excess of what they're going to extract. Because if a team comes to the grid, we are going to divide the prize money, not 10 ways, but now 11 ways. And that was understood mm-hmm. when the Concord Agreement was hammered out and agreed to by the teams in 2020 because they put that anti-dilution fee in place, which was $200 million or a one-time payment of $20 million to each of the team. But the finances of F1 have 
exponentially increased since then. And a one-time $20 million payment to the teams on the grid is meaningless, absolutely meaningless because the value of the sport and the sponsorship and the TV money is now so big. So the challenge is, I think the teams are still open to the right entry, but that $200 million anti-dilution fee, that's non-existent. We're talking six to $800 million, which in itself is still very small because if you look at the NBA, we are expecting two new teams in that sport once the current CBA gets hammered out and once they agree to their new TV media deals. It's expected that the Las Vegas team is going to go for $4 billion and the Seattle team will be a, there will be a bidding war for that Seattle team and it'll probably go for $4.5 billion. So the idea that a Formula One team can land on the grid for $200 million is pretty laughable. So I think the reality is these teams will continue to talk to Liberty and argue that, look, if a team's entering the grid, one time $20 million payment to each of us is BS. That needs to be a, $80 $80 million, $100 million payment. And at the end of the day, Andretti doesn't have six or $700 million. And, and GM's certainly not going to bankroll that. And I'm not saying that there are other teams that are, but I see a lot of people saying that this is about greed. This is greed. This is greed. I'm like, of course it is. The 10 teams that are in Formula One have spent hundreds of millions of dollars building their brands and building their factories and competing in the sport. Also, that they have a shot at the prize money every year. They have every right to resent somebody coming onto the grid that isn't going to add value to the sport. And I think the silence this week has been incredibly powerful. But I am confident that there are other teams negotiating with the FIA and they're negotiating with Stefano Domenicali, but they're doing it quietly and they're doing it professionally and they're not taking the same brash approach that Andretti has. Now, I said last week that I was super excited about the Andretti GM bid and it was the first time I'd been excited about that. But I've also learned a lot more about the GM bid and I'm very cool on the idea of GM coming in with a technical partnership with Andretti, but buying the power units from Renault and rebadging them. So I know I've said a lot. I think it's a very Mm -hmm. complex issue and it's not going to be solved anytime soon. I think the FIA is hoping to conclude the expressions of interest phase by May, but at the same time, that's their timetable. Nobody knows what Formula One timetable is. Nobody knows what Liberty's timetable is. And again, I want an F, I want an America, a truly American based team in Formula One. But I think Liberty's probably still looking at that Porsche bid and the Ford bid and the Hyundai bid and all these other considerations that, for all we know, there could be much stronger candidates out there than this one that are negotiating in, in the back room. But I guess we'll find out. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, Andrew Benson from the the BBC summed it up uh, nicely when it comes to the uh, the, the the Cadillac uh, involvement, and uh, the, the the couple of quotes here that uh, that Andrews uh, rounded up. The first one comes uh, from GM President Mark Roos, who said last week at the uh, the announcement, uh, "quote Vast engineering resources will bring proven success and invaluable uh, sorry invaluable contributions." to this partnership, end quote. Then Michael Andretti added to to that, quote, the capabilities that GM has are on the level with any Formula One team out there. That's going to help us get up and running even quicker, end quote. So I think that's interesting on a couple of uh, levels, right? It's just like they're trying to suggest that, you know, if we get GM and Cadillac involved, this is going to give us a leg up that a lot of other people don't have. But if you kind of compare to... 
where they are right now they're they're still trying to get uh, you know get officially accepted or be granted that 11th team you look at what where audi is at and what what audi is kind of targeting and you know for for their first season in 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 2026 they're already doing this thing right and they realize that even aiming for 2026 is a very very narrow small absolutely time frame right so here comes uh, and and dreddy i mean yeah i mean we we know what their record is like in 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 racing they're proven winners we know all that we we know what gm is like as an oem but put the two together and and aim for 2025 i agree with you that seems like a pretty unrealistic time frame to try and get a brand new works team uh, up and running and that's why i can see why a lot of these uh, people especially these, these unnamed sources uh, you know reputedly some team principals in some cases are just saying that this is all just uh, smoke and mirrors and it's 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 just a, a branding exercise that they're going to take a reno power unit and throw a cadillac badge on there and say yeah you know this is uh we're we're Met works team and a manufacturer in uh, in our own right so yeah they're, they're they're rocking the boat but it is interesting like you say hammy that that they're conducting this whole business out there in the public uh sphere whereas you've heard these other names like, like ford for example like hyundai and porsche etc et right that these names get dropped out there and or they, they sort of, you know, percolate up through the, uh, the, the the news feed on a week to week. Well, maybe not a week to week basis, but they pop up from from time to time and then they just kind of disappear. And then, you know, maybe something a little bit more speculation or rumor pops up, uh, you know, several weeks later, whatever, whatever it might be. But the Andretti thing has kind of stayed there a little bit more prominently for a, a, a much longer time. But it's, it's, it is interesting, you know, like when you look at what, uh, you know, Andretti's doing and, uh, you know, being in the uh, the, the, the public realm, uh, he was uh, speaking, Michael Andretti, that is, was speaking to Forbes and uh, he really struck out and lashed out at the, you know, the attitude of the Formula One teams. And this this is not going to help his case. No, not at you all. Know, totally, a, a, totally not at all, agree. Right? Yeah, because I'll read the quote here. He said, quote, it's all about money. First, they think they're going to get diluted one-tenth of the prize money, but they also get very greedy thinking, we will take all the American sponsors as well. It's all about greed and looking at themselves and not looking at what is best for the overall growth of the series, end quote. So who knows? Maybe there is a kernel of truth to that, although... I, I do agree that there is like a lot of self-serving interests in Formula One, yeah, but course, I would like to think that that they're not that blind to like. I mean, the the whole idea of expansion is not new. It's 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 been out there for a while. I mean, I could see if there was like no talk about it whatsoever, and all of a sudden the FIA and Formula One announced, okay, we're leading this new team on the uh, on the grid for next year, Team X or whatever it is, then I could understand that there would be justifiable and expected, you know, outrage and backlash from the other 10 teams, right? But I, I would like to think that given this much notice and this, this much discussion, that given the right candidate, the right team, that, that, you know, they wouldn't be that self-serving that they would recognize, yeah, if we bring this team on board, this is a win-win for everybody. So I, 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 you know, I would love to see should any one of these other reputed bids from Ford or Hyundai or Porsche, whoever, 
you know, if, if, if they're successful in doing it, how did they do it and what did they do right or do different? Should the Andretti, you know, bids or whatever you want to call it eventually fizzle out and, and just disappear like a puff of smoke. You make such a great point when you were reading that quote from Forbes a couple of minutes ago in the fact that public comments like that isn't a good way to build relationships and to build rapport with the teams. Because ultimately, the teams do not get to vote on this. They do not have a say. But the teams and FOM, Liberty, are closely interconnected. And a big part of Stefano Domenicali's job is to protect the interests of the team. Because we've had situations in the past where there's been discord between Formula One and the FIA and the teams. And there have been threats of breakaway series. That is to say, Teams will leave Formula One and start their own championship. And I'm not saying that's about to happen here, but we've been close to that in the last 15 years. Like that's that's how recently there have been a threat of teams breaking away to start their own championship. But I, I'll just kind of wrap this up with a quick quote here from Andrew Benson in that article, which I thought was really fascinating. And he, he writes, With F, within F1, this whole situation is being viewed through the prism of what has been a tense relationship between the FIA, F1, and the team since Ben Salam took over. This has been characterized by a series of difficulties, such as a clampdown on driver jewelry, dissatisfaction over the FIA's handling of safety matter, and the political dispute over the number of quote-unquote sprint races this year. Many senior figures believe Ben Salam is attempting to demonstrate his power and influence, even in areas where technically he should not be meddling. Just five months into his presidency last year, F1 bosses were openly telling teams that they were looking at ways to remove the FIA from the day-to-day operations of the sport. That calmed down for a while through the summer, not least because it's a difficult thing to do as the FIA owns the rights to the F1 championship and F1 merely leases them, but the concerns have never fully gone away. As one team boss said, all that's been going on and it's getting worse. Andretti, it seems, is just the latest person to be drawn into a wider power struggle at the heart of Formula One, end quote. Yeah, interesting, right? And I was also... Excuse me, just uh, looking at this uh, article here from Racer.com from uh, Chris uh, Medland. And uh, Chris starts it off uh, and he says, quote, I never thought I'd write the words to this effect, especially as a journalist who desperately wants to know as much as possible all of the time. But Michael, Michael Andretti, that is, for your own sake, please just stop talking. <laughs> so you should. <laughs> I, I thought that was kind of That's funny. That's advice Anyways, that I've he, been given many times and I've never listened to no, it. St- yeah, I know. Likewise. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm guilty of the same thing. Uh, anyways, uh, Chris goes on to say, quote, Andretti is a racer. His family is full of them. So I don't doubt that a huge driving force behind his desire to enter F1 is simply uh, to compete in the championship. But he's also not an idiot and neither are the backers from Group 1001 and GM. And the potential value of being an F1 team now and moving forwards is not lost on any of them. It's not just a sporting decision. It's a business one, too. So is the thinking behind the response from Formula One, more specifically the current teams. The biggest question I get from readers is, what has F1 got against Andretti? Completely overlooking the fact that just because the sport hasn't gone crazy at the prospect, it doesn't mean that it's specifically against it. But it won't give away a a team an entry purely on the basis of it publicly saying it wants one, and has actually warned Andretti trying to go about it in that way. It's not a warning that has been heated, end quote. So it kind of keeps on, kind of goes back to what we were just uh, talking about. Anyways, um, you should go and check that one out, uh, that article from Chris Medland at uh, Formula One. 
com or sorry racer.com pardon me so uh hammy let's take a, a a quick break here we're a little bit late for that we'll come back got other things uh, to talk about uh actually we'll, we'll stick with uh with, with andretti for just a little bit longer than we've got um a couple of other interesting ones here as well as a uh, potential formula one entries as well so anyways stick with us we'll be back in just a moment so don't go away when you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, welcome back. So sticking with Andretti, just looking at an article here from uh, Jonathan Noble on motorsport.com. And Jonathan posits that Honda is in fact the most logical choice for Cadillac's entry into Formula One with uh, Andretti. So this uh, this is an interesting uh, an interesting thought. And uh, do you want to uh, pick this one up here, for Mark, or shall I try and stumble through this one myself? No, no, I think this is a, a really good conversation. And my, my, my sense is that the idea of Honda being a potential partner to GM lies in the fact that the two have been partnering on EV infrastructure and development on the road car side of the business. So there's already a partnership there. But at the same time, we don't even know for certain if Honda is going to be supplying anybody with power units for 2026. Certainly, they've signed up to the, the regs for 2026 and they're continuing on their journey. But we do know that certainly Renault is committed. And previously, Renault had a signed commitment with Andretti to provide their team with engines. engines. And of course, last year when when uh, Andretti did his stunt in Miami, where he was going up and down the paddock getting signatures, the only two teams that were willing to sign on were Renault because they're in desperate need of a customer team. Ever since McLaren left to go to, back to Mercedes, they've been without a customer team. So they're missing that source of revenue and they're furthermore kind of missing out on the development prospects of having another set of power units on the grid. So I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be Renault. Honda maybe logically makes sense, but Honda hasn't even committed. And like you read earlier, the the leadership at GM have stated that they already have an agreement in place. And I can't imagine they have an agreement in with Honda if Honda's not committed to the sport beyond 2025. And we know that between 2023 and 2025, their role is simply going to be to provide power units out of their Tokyo facility to Red Bull and Milton Keynes. Yeah, it is interesting, though. I mean, uh, some comments that uh, Alpine Technical Director Mar uh, Matt Harmon uh, made to uh, RacingNews365.com, he said that... Uh that not having what he called the distraction of supplying customer engines to Red Bull uh, for the last uh, several years has been a massive advantage uh, for, for the team. So Red Bull switched over to Honda Power starting in 2019, and then that left uh, Renault supplying power units to its own works team, which has been since uh, rebranded uh, re as Alpine, and like you say, to, to, to McLaren, who have subsequently returned to, uh, McLaren, or sorry, to Mercedes Power 
uh, for, for, for last uh, season. Um, yeah, it, it is interesting though, right? I mean, but that, that split between Red Bull and, and Renault, we don't really need to, to get into it. That had been coming for a long, long time. I mean, you know, even going back to the, the, the first year of V6 Turbo Hybrid Power back in 2014, they clearly did not have like the, the, the Renault, out of the three power units, uh, then uh, Mercedes, Ferrari, and, and and Renault, it clearly clearly was the third best one. And Christian Horner, even that, you know, that long ago, had been complaining and lamenting about it uh, publicly. So that uh, just uh, you know, it, it looked like it could uh, potentially happen at at some point, and it uh, eventually did. So now um, another team that uh, could potentially uh, come into Formula One is Panthera, who has announced that they want a piece of uh, Formula One. They want to be the, uh, the the like Asia's Formula One team. And uh, do you want to talk about this one a little bit more, Hammy? I don't really know too much about uh, Panthera and 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 what they could bring to the bring to the table. In a lot of ways, their bid is not dissimilar to what I think Andretti is trying to do. And and I think if you look mm-hmm. at the Formula One teams today, seven of the ten are fully based in the UK, and that just makes sense because that's where so much of the uh, I would say intellectual capital, the people capital exists, and that's where the supply chains are for so many of these teams. So it's it's always made sense. But on part of Andretti's bid, in and this is something that teams are very skeptical about being actually operational, but uh, Andretti bids and hopes to be able to base his team out of a new factory in Indiana. And that would be their principal hub with smaller hubs in Europe. And I think Panthera is hoping to do the same, which is ultimately base the team and their factory in Asia in a hub near one of the Grand Prix circuits. But they also want to be able to build and develop out a driver academy that looks principally at young Asian talent to help build and stimulate the sport at the grassroots level in in that region of the world. And again, I, to be fair, and I think I've said this before, I'm probably not as up to speed with some of the, the lower formulas and some of the regional formula championships out there. My understanding is that it's a very capable organization and that this isn't the first time they've expressed interest in joining the grid. I think that they're I think their financial capabilities are such that joining Formula One is going to be a stretch, even at that $200 million anti-dilution fee, plus the cost required to get the sport stood up. But what I, I am excited to see is that over the course of the next three or four months, hopefully more and more of these bids do become public. And hopefully we're able to have conversations about why certain bids for these expansion teams, we'll call them, are attractive while others aren't. But I think in a lot of ways, they really want this to be a regional team that represents that that region of the world. And they'll do that through a driver academy and by regionalizing the factory and relying on regional supply chains to, to build up the team and the car. But the other story here, and this is one that I really wanted to get into with Sam Cooper, at least maybe we will next time, is that there's a prospective investor in Hong Kong called Calvin Lowe. And Calvin is a very, very wealthy individual who himself has expressed interest in joining Formula One in some capacity. And I think there might be a potential partnership between the two that Panthera brings the racing pedigree and the knowledge and know-how of how to build and manage a racing team. And Calvin could be the the missing link to bring them onto the grid because as a billionaire who's expressed interest in joining Formula One, that this could be a good marriage between the two of them. And 
I think this is planetf1.com, a story by our good friend, friend of the show. I can officially say that now, Sam Cooper. But he writes, quote unquote, Panthera are one of many names aiming to get onto the F1 grid, but believe a 2026 spot is likely to be begun working on the FIA's expression of interest process. Asked by planetf1.com if a link up with Lowe could be possible in the future, co-founder and team principal Benjamin Duran said they were open to it. And he says, we haven't talked to Calvin Lowe right now. He told planetf1.com. It was interesting to see his comments in the press because he's basically saying also what we're saying that the Asian market isn't the focus right now, the US. So everybody's looking over there. They're all looking West. Nobody's looking East, which is a mistake, but also good for us because this is what we can bring. So there are a lot of things that are in line with Calvin Lowe. I don't have details about his project, but we are open to everything. We are still in the stage. If whoever comes can bring us something that can reinforce our project and reinforce the bid for F1, then that is good. In response, Lowe said he agreed that the East is a huge market and said that conversation have already that conversations have already started. He concludes, these are exciting times for the F1 world. Its popularity is increasing and everyone wants to be a part of it. And you know, when Sam and I were talking the other day, one of the things that I thought was really interesting is he speaks to the fact that when Liberty bought Formula One, it really saw two prospective markets to tap into. One was the US, and I think they've done an exceptional job. We're in Miami, we're in Las Vegas, TV viewership is up. There's tons of American sponsors up and down the grid. But the other is China. And in large part because of COVID and the strict lockdowns, they haven't even begun scratching the surface of China, but a an Asian-based team could do a lot to help stimulate interest in that country. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Uh, and, and, you know, just, you know, it kind of goes back to like the broader discussion about, you know, what makes Formula One truly a world championship? Is it the fact that they, you know, Formula One races in, you know, a globally representative uh, manner that you have, you know, each different geographic reason or region is uh, represented? Is it represented by the location of the teams themselves, the drivers? It, it really is a, an interesting uh, and bigger uh, discussion. But I, you know, as we were sort of, uh, you know, talking about this, uh, I was looking a little bit further down the uh, the, the show notes here. And this kind of uh, goes back uh, or kind of lends into this uh, conversation here. So in the past uh, two decades or so, there have been 10 new teams admitted into uh, Formula One. So out of that uh, that list, only two of those teams are still left. So uh, the, the most recently admitted team is uh, is Haas, and uh, they uh, joined the grid in 2016. So they're still in Formula One, but they haven't really lit it up, right? So the other teams that, uh, that were uh, admitted was HRT in 2010. Virgin also joined in 2010, as did Lotus. So all three of those teams are gone. Super Aguri joined in 2006. Toyota joined in 2002. Stewart Racing, they entered in 1997. Uh, then Ford uh, took over the team, rebranded it as uh, Jaguar. And they raced for five, four or five very unimpressive seasons. And then apparently uh, Red Bull owner Dieter Meischitz walked up and offered them a massive amount of money, reputedly a dollar, and bought the team <laughs> for this ridiculous nominal fee, put Christian Horner in charge and rebranded it as Red Bull. And the rest is, is history there. 
another team that uh, joined in 1995 was 40, and then Pacific entered in 1994. They long since disappeared, as is the final team, uh, Simtech, who joined the grid in 19. 19- is there anyone add something real quick to that because i think it's sure i think it's important that we we contextualize some of those exits because if you go back to the late 2000s and the global economic crisis we saw the departure of a huge number of teams especially works teams like bmw exited toyota exited honda exited we're really now 15 years later getting back to where we were in the late 2000s in terms of the participation of oems but in 2010 Formula One was in desperate need of teams to fill the grid, and they looked to uh, three specific teams. HRT, who joined in 2020, of course, they're long gone. Virgin, who transformed into a couple of other teams, of course, they're long gone. And Lotus, who transformed into, I think, Caterham, and of course, they're long gone now as well. But all three of those teams... They were small teams. They came into the sport predicated under with predicated under the belief that the sport was going to institute a or a budget cap, and of course that didn't happen until 2021. <laughs> For another but decade, all of those teams, yeah entered the sport under the impression and, and with the full expectation that they would be operating in a very different world. And of course, the budget cap is one of the things that almost broke Formula One with that split array racing series, but all three of those teams eventually failed. And I think Formula One's now like, hey, we could potentially afford to bring on a smaller team, but because there's so much interest, we don't necessarily have to. But it is interesting that in 2010, they were basically um, opening up to anybody that could put together or assemble a car. And even in 2016, the fact that Haas was able to get onto the grid for for virtually nothing is is astounding. And that's where I think I get so frustrated with Andretti that if this was something that you really wanted, you could have done it in 2016 for a song. Yeah, I know it's 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 incredible, right? Too like uh, going back to didn't we have like uh, at one point two teams called Lotus? Yeah, at the same <laughs> like time, about ten oh, or twelve man. years at the same time. And wh- one of the Lotus teams was uh, rebranded as uh, as Renault in in twenty fourteen or twenty fifteen or whatever it was, which is now currently uh, Alpine. But I'm sure if you went back and 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 looked at every Formula One season and the list of um, you know, teams that were in there, I'm sure that the the teams or the list of teams that have come and gone would be literally a mile long. I mean, if you go back to like the 80s and 90s, I mean, they had like Thursday pre-qualifying just to make the grid. And I swear some of these teams just had enough resources to have a driver, have a car and a crew and just show up to races with, you know, the, the whole goal was just to, to make it to race day on Sunday. I mean, they had no realistic chance of ever scoring points, let alone a win. There is it's, an uh, I mean, episode of the Bring Back V10s Formula One podcast that does a yep. really great story on the fact that Lola, a company that had historically built uh, chassis for Formula One teams and, and, and for other single-seater racing series, uh, they came into Formula One yep. in 1997. And at the first Grand Prix, they weren't actually able to qualify so back then qualifying wasn't just about setting the grid like you've expressed before like you had to qualify to get into the race to actually race that weekend like you could go home without actually participating Mm -hmm. in the race they didn't qualify that first race they had sponsor trouble and they never made it to the second race in brazil so some of these teams that have an absolutely deep history and a rich history around the sport sometimes struggles. So that's, I think, where some of the skepticism with Andretti comes as well, that he might be misunderstanding the complexity of building a Formula One team. But then again, if you say that, Haas was able to do it, although, of course, with some deep integration (laughs) with Ferrari, but moving on. 
Yeah, moving on, moving on. Okay, uh, Total Wolf team principal uh, Mercedes says that uh, series like DTM and Formula E, which uh, are, are racing series that they all, uh, Mercedes that is, uh, previously raced in but have now left, are now dwarfed by um, the costs and efforts of uh, Formula One. Anyways, uh, Toto said in an interview with a uh, Polish website, I am not even attempting to to try and pronounce. I'm pretty good at trying to, to get most of these to go. Good. But very good. Yeah, but my, my Polish is not up there, so I, I don't want to, to, to butcher it. Anyways, uh, Toto said, quote, I think that Formula One has become so big that everything else has been dwarfed. We were really happy, successful in DTM for over 30 years. But it's come to a point where at the works team, if you wanted to compete, you need 40 or 50 million euros on and a return on investment was too small for that. And that's just the same in Formula E. The audience were just not good enough. So you have DTM there and then you have Formula E here and then you have Formula One in the whole room. So we decided let's concentrate on doing that properly and put the resources into Formula One rather than being distracted for the other things. Of course... Oh, pardon me. That's the end of the uh, the, the quote right there. So th- that is uh, amazing. And uh, he sums it up, right? That the return on investment for DTM and Formula E just basically does not make it uh, worth it. And and we saw a lot of these OEMs going into to Formula E in what, the last five, six years or so. And a lot of them have subsequently uh, pulled out. And and basically, they, they've said, you know, we've, we've learned everything here that we really can learn and done everything here that we could really do. So we don't really feel like it's an effective place for us to, to be anymore. But I just can't help that maybe... Toto's admission is a uh, the, the more accurate one, and that when they make the announcement that uh, it's they've decided to leave Formula E, it really is that they're not getting the ROI that uh, they they really need to justify being there in the first place. So bringing it full circle back to the uh, the the birthday boy Lewis Hamilton, where we started this um, uh, this podcast, which seems like an eternity ago. Toto Wolf believes. Absolutely, that uh, Lewis Hamilton will re-sign a new contract with uh, Mercedes as he tries to set the record as the most winningest champion, world champion of uh, all time. So, Hammy, your thoughts on this? Uh, is Lewis Hamilton going to re-sign a new contract? I, I, I you know, personally, I, I can't see Lewis not re-signing at this point. I still think he's got something to prove in Formula One. I, I think that uh, he's still obviously on the top of his game. And uh, it just seems to be, it, it seems too soon for him to walk away, but ultimately only Lewis knows where Lewis there is There is right? really only there, I should probably use proper English, there are really only two questions that I think need to be answered here, which is, what is the term going to be? How many years? And and how much? Because I think he is, especially after what we saw from that team of the back half of 2022, I think he's I think emotionally, psychologically, he's in a really good place. And I think he feels the team's getting the car in a real good place. It's shocking that he's 38 because I I would argue he's probably still one of the the fittest drivers on the entire grid. And I I think if there's a sense that this car is going to be competitive and win races this year, and I think there's every expectation it will, especially after George Russell uh, secured that that sprint race victory and the Grand Prix victory in Brazil at the end of the season, I I think he's going to be motivated to stay and he's never going to consider anywhere else. I think like you and I have talked about before, if I'm him, I'm not negotiating not just for a high value contract in the 40, 50, 60 million euro range. 
I'm negotiating for a piece of the team so I can be a global ambassador mm-hmm. for Mercedes for the rest of my life. Well, the thing is, I mean, they made Nico Rosberg a team ambassador. I, I just can't see Lewis being satisfied after everything he's done for Mercedes as a Mercedes driver. That just to to me, that just you know that just doesn't seem right. It would almost be insulting. It's just after all you've done, you know, you can be a brand ambassador. You know, you just be be a, you know go out there and you know at the pep rallies and pump up Mercedes and go and sign autographs. You know, it has to be more substantial than that. You know, it just uh, any anything else just uh, doesn't it doesn't feel right. Uh, anyways, uh, moving along. Uh, new team principal at uh, Ferrari, Fred uh, Frederick Vasseur, told uh, Luke Smith at uh, Motorsport.com in an interview that he wants str- a quicker, stricter action on future F1 cost cap uh, breaches. And uh, he had the following to say, quote, where we have to work to today, firstly, it has been far too long. We need to find a way to have a red light before or able to be able or to be able to take action much earlier. And we have to probably be a bit more strict on the decision. Okay, perhaps this was the first one, but from now on, we have to forget about minor and major. Because for me, two or three million, it's not minor, it's mega for development. I think we have to be much more strict and much more quick on the action, end quote. I think that is a fair comment. And I think that, uh, you know, I do see the irony in a, in a Ferrari team principal wanting strict and quick and, you know, open action on breaches and stuff like that, even though he wasn't the guy in charge at Ferrari. <laughs> that, you know, going back a couple of years to that, uh, you know, technical infraction with the power units. Anyhow, that's, it, there is a little bit of irony there. But I think he raises a good point because he says, and I think this is the key part of the quote uh, where he says, because for me, two or three million, it's not minor it's mega for development and i think this is a very good observation because even though he's the ferrari team principal he's come from alfa romeo slash sauber which is a small team and you know he's had these smaller budgets to work with before the whole cost cap thing was you know instituted uh, just last year and so you can see how he brings that uh, different uh, perspective that even two to three million dollars in this uh, current era of formula one is a big, big thing. And sure, like he says, that this was the first time that we had uh, cost cap uh, breaches and overspends. And maybe that is a good point that it, regardless if it's a minor or major one, shouldn't an overspend be an overspend? It's just like, you know, regardless of the amount. So I think that's it's it's a very, very interesting perspective and comments that, that he made. What yeah, do you think, I think Annie? what's valuable about this is that these comments are coming from somebody who's running one of the biggest teams in the sport, right? Like you would expect these comments to come from a smaller team, a minnow, like a, a Haas or a, a Williams. But I think yep. it's reassuring that Vasur is running Ferrari with the mindset of a operator from a smaller team. I, I, I do think that the way and again, give credit to the team at the FIA that are responsible for, uh, I would say, enforcing the financial regulations. I'm sure it's obscenely complex and challenging. I just think they they had effectively a trial run in 20. Uh, the the implementation went into force in 2021. And I just, I, I think there's some work to do because it got really messy at the end. The fact that we don't know 
who complied and who didn't comply until two thirds of the two thirds of the way through the subsequent calendar year isn't good enough. And of course, this year we were expecting the compliance certificates to be handed out, and they weren't handed out, and there was a delay, and the <laughs> communication was really terrible. And of course, it it bled to the media that there was an overspend with Red Bull, and Red Bull went to the media, and it became very very a huge distraction in the middle of the championship. And then it turns out that they did overspend, and it was. The whole thing was just extremely poorly managed and it was very messy. So as much as I'm sure it was challenging for the FIA to administer this, it is their job and it's got to be way better this year. Like one, we need to know the compliance and we need to be handing out their certificates in April. We can't be handing them out in late summer, in the fall. And to, to Fred's point as well, that if there is a breach, like you, you need to execute on that breach immediately. But you and I have talked about this before. The teams did agree to the financial regulations and the financial regulations are very vague and they're very ambiguous and they leave an awful lot up to interpretation. So hopefully the next time, because I think I agree with what Fred's saying, it's going to be difficult to implement without reworking the financial regulations. So I hope that the next time they go to rewrite the financial regulations, they are much, much, much more black and white and much more clear on timelines and executables in the mm-hmm. event that somebody does overspend. Yeah, 100%. Uh, I, I really don't have any th- further uh, comment to, to, to make to that. But it just, uh, in, in general, it seemed that when, you know, when there were breaches to it, it just, to me, it almost had like, you know, an inevitable feel to it. It was just like, I, I wasn't surprised <laughs> that, uh, that, that it occurred. I mean, some, you know, you had like, you know, the, the, the couple of teams that got busted for, for small things, but the, the, the Red Bull one, I mean, the, I mean, remember we went down there with Tim and we looked through it. I mean, we, we went over, you know, there was a whole list of the items where that, uh, that, that got flagged all these line items on an expense yeah. sheet or whatever it was. And I mean, it just wasn't one or two. I mean, it was a couple of dozen things that have been flagged for, for one reason or another. And some of them were, were, were really strange looking at <laughs> who knows if it was creative, you know, labeling Mr. or whatever, Daly, but no, we're not going to speak. Before too much. we move on yes. to the, sto- the next story, I just got a press release fresh from Paris okay. from the Federation okay. International Podcasting. And it reads okay. effective immediately. All new Formula One podcasts are required to pay a $200 million anti-dilution fee that is to be distributed to all existing F1 podcasts. The $200 million can be sent via Venmo to Mark Hamilton at Skidaria F1 Pod. Trust me, I will will fairly distribute it amongst all of the established F1 podcasts, but in fairness to us, not because we're greedy. Hang on, hang on. on. Can can I can you can I just hold you for a second? I got Michael Andretti banging <laughs> on the door here. Let's like let me send him on his way, and then you can continue. Are we yeah, good yeah, with that? That's good. <laughs> no, but that that's yeah. I think you know. I I'm just outraged that uh, anybody would want to jump into the podcast space and take our our, our piece of the uh, the the prize How money. Dare it's just, they uh, take it's just our not on. Dare How dare they? Supplement <laughs> advertisers. How dare they? Yeah, I was just say, you know, if they wanted to, they can take the biggest slice of nothing that they yeah. want. You yeah, know? <laughs> yeah we're, we're 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 not making huge amounts of money here, despite uh, despite you know wishes to the otherwise. You know, 
Anyhow, moving along, and Michael, come on, it's time to go home. Uh, <laughs> anyways, uh, sticking with the Ferrari, uh, they've decided to give uh, Antonio Giovinazzi another chance at uh, redemption, that uh, he will form part of Ferrari's Hypercar World Endurance Championship uh, lineup uh, this year, 2023, who's had... He's had a couple kicks at the can, uh, and he still manages to, to to hang around. I guess he was an academy driver in the past, and he was with Sauber and then with Alfa Romeo. But, you know, uh, you have to give him credit. He's found a way to make himself uh, relevant and stay on the radar there at Maranello. Yeah. In, in one Autosport way is reporting as well that Giovinazzi and Schwartzman are set to share Ferrari F1 reserve role or the Ferrari F1 reserve role in 2023. So like you say, he's he's had this kick at the can. And I know that Ferrari was very upset a few years ago that they weren't able to find a full-time ride for him at Sauber Alfa Romeo. And I think they were equally as upset with Haas that they couldn't get him a seat there. And it was good to see those teams flex and show a little bit of independence when it came to driver selection. But for whatever reason, it's really important for the firm in Marinello to have an Italian driver in or around the sport. So it looks like he's going to be involved in a couple of Ferrari projects. And we may see him as a uh, reserve driver, do a couple of free practice sessions this year. And he's obviously going to get an awful lot of sim time in, in uh, supporting the development of that car. Yeah, it is interesting. Uh, like I say, though, that uh, he has managed to 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 stick around for as long as he has in one way uh, or another. Uh, there was uh, something that uh, I wanted to uh, to to bring up, uh, but uh, let's while I look for that, let's just go on to a different uh, story here. And this is um, so. This is going back to the allegations at the end of the season that that you know the the whole thing in Brazil that uh, that you know where, where Max wouldn't. Uh, he he basically flipped the bird to Sergio, wouldn't uh, give him the, the position back. And he, he got very, very um, scold. He had a real scolding tone all over the radio saying that, uh, you know, he wasn't give the, the, the position back and they, they knew why. So afterwards it came back. There were some allegations that uh, Sergio had allegedly crashed on purpose during qualified during Monaco. And so, you know, nothing more has really come of it, uh, but uh, Carlos Sainz did kind of hint at the time how uh, deliberate crashes in Formula One, it, it happens a little bit more often than than people might expect, you know, unless, you know, we kind of go back That's a number of years to the time that man. Michael Schumacher yeah. parked it at, at Tabac at, uh, at Monaco and at Monaco basically as walked well, away. It's yeah, yeah, as well. Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this is just 100%. It's one of those stories that boggles my mind that the allegation and and it seems to be it's been vaguely reported that it's generally understood within the paddock that that crash was in fact intentional but the fact that nobody in the media mm-hmm. has has grabbed their their cap in their cape and their notepad and put a little tag in the brim of their hat that says Scoop McGee and has gone out and investigated this story to its fullest is crazy because it's right there, this allegation, this generally understood truth that that he intentionally crashed his car and nobody's done anything about it because that is in itself a massive scandal. What's even more scandalous is the understanding that this happens more often than maybe we even think, which is crazy. Well, I, I mean, there's a couple of things on that that, I, I mean, these drivers truly are incredibly talented. If they can pull off a crash, 
deliberately on purpose and make it look like you know it was you know <laughs> an accident to you know mere mortals uh, like ourselves. But you know, the, just going back to what your comments there, you know, Mark about the the allegations that uh, Perez crashed on purpose at, at Monaco, and the fact that you know if there was anything to this, why has nobody like why has no investigative uh, reporter journalist dug into this deeper? Why has this not seen the light of day? But uh, perhaps it's it, it's an ugly piece of dirty laundry that they don't want uh, getting out that would, you know, perhaps really ruin the credibility of oh, the yeah. sport, and that right? Team. I mean, and we're, Red we're, Bull. We're, we're, and the team, yeah. Well, I mean, come, yeah, I, I mean. We, we've come well maybe because you know there's not enough daylight between those comments at the end of this past season and what happened at the at the end of uh last year at the end of 2021 in Abu Dhabi and the whole you know Michael Massey race restarts you know let's just say shenanigans just to put it mildly and the, the questionable way that uh, that that race was uh, restarted maybe that there was who, who knows what went uh, went on behind the scenes but i just uh, really find it uh, interesting like yourself and you know i would expect many other people that these allegations came out and as, as quickly as they kind of bubbled up to the surface you would have thought that it really would have exploded but it it disappeared very very quickly which was very very strange all right well i did have something else i don't know where it oh, went the story. so I, I, i'm I sorry must have, that was that whole yeah. preamble was around the fact that quote unquote f1 team yeah. bosses pitch solutions for qualifying crashes that cause red flags and i think again the oh, whole sorry. impetus and it's late man Cut you some slack. It's been a long week for both of us. You're <laughs> you're sliding into a new career here. But uh, I think the story really is the fact that it wasn't that he crashed intentionally. It was that he crashed intentionally so he could secure a better grid slot than his teammate. Because with the superior car, his understanding was, as long as I start in front of Max in Monaco, I'm going to be able to win this race. And I think we saw this, of course, a couple of years ago in Monaco with Charles Leclerc. When he crashed on a qualifying lap, he qualified and pull. Of course, he had mechanical difficulties and never actually started the race. But that's another example of a circumstance where he qualified on pole, but red flags brought out by his crash uh, prevented anyone else from being able to put in a better time. And the conversation has continued to percolate since Monaco this year of what should happen in the event that somebody has a crash or brings out yellow flags or red flags that end the session or delay the session. And I think there's a quote here from McLaren CEO, of course, Zach Brown saying he believes the simple rule that should be a adopted is that which IndyCar has. And he says it would be an easy solution. And he says, I think it should be red flags or yellow flags, effectively impeding a driver from completing their lap. They do that in other forms of motorsports. You just lose your fastest lap from that session. All the drivers tend to do one lap runs anyway. So that would penalize the driver if it was intentional or unintentional because you've messed up someone else's lap. I think that's an easy solution and it can be implemented right away. So his argument is, hey, if you're going to crash, you're going to lose your fastest lap from that session which absolutely discourages drivers from bringing out the yellow flags, Nico, Schumacher, and absolutely discourages this type of behavior, but also punishes behavior like in the Claire case. And nobody's arguing that Leclerc crashed on purpose, but his crash was hugely beneficial to his qualifying run. So I, I think this yep. is good. And yep. I think what they exactly. do in Indy works, the, the other recommendation is like, hey, if there's yellow flags, red flags, add extra time. I don't like that. If there's a crash, you know what? delete their fastest time from that session. 
Yeah. I, I think it's a simple solution to make the problem go away. And, um, you know, if it actually is a problem. And I, th- I, th- I think it's uh, fairly ingenious as well. But, you know, I got distracted, kind of like went over the beat of that story is because while, while I was talking, I found the quote that I was looking for. And it was so obvious because in the show notes, you highlighted it. And it was so obvious that I didn't actually uh, see it. But I kind of wanted just to, to bring it back uh, to the uh, Andretti discussion just as we wrap it up uh, here, uh, Mark. Andretti said. And this again was from. Um, uh, yeah, the Andretti sandwich, and it goes back to the um, the story from Andrew Benson on uh, from the the, the, the BBC, and uh, where he said uh, an existing F1 team boss described the plan to base the Andretti team in the U.S. as insane, and suggested that uh, Andretti appeared not to have learned the lessons of his own brief flirtation with Formula One as a driver. And what that means, by you the know, way, is. Andretti had, of course, that one season with McLaren, and he was booted with a couple of races left to go. He was criticized at the time. What was that? 1994? 93. 93. Something like that. Yeah. He was hugely criticized at the time because he wasn't willing to commit to living in the UK full time, and he was effectively commuting from the US. And a lot of people felt that compromised his test time. It compromised the amount of time he was in the factory. It compromised his ability to help the development of the car. And of course, all that added travel was a huge stressor on him. So whether any of that's true, that's what that that comment is that he didn't learn his lesson. And I think the argument is that, look, if seven of the 10 teams are based in the UK and all 10 teams are based in Western Europe and you're going to base your factory in the US, that puts you at a significant distance from all of the supply chains, from the entire infrastructure that is Formula One. You immediately put your team at a disadvantage. You don't need to be based in the US. You can be a US team just like we have non-British teams based in the UK. Renault is based in the UK. And they are very much a French team, but uh, that's what that comment means. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was interesting. I thought it was uh, worth uh, just uh, throwing in there before we hang up the headphones and turn off the mics uh, for another. Well, I was going to say another week, but of course, at the beginning of the show, you <laughs> dropped uh, the announcement that we're doing a Sunday show. Like, oh, okay, I guess I got plans Two for weeks, Sunday baby, now, but for the hey, whole you know, year, <laughs> for the whole year, hundred and ten shows. <laughs> oh, exactly, exactly. We we just kind of like hit uh, hit our stride a little bit sooner because you know before you know it, uh, the the season is going to start. So we're going to be in in, in mid season form by the time we get to the beginning of the season. You know, yeah. fingers crossed. Yeah. Anyways, I think that's a good place to uh, to park it for this week hammy you've always got a, an announcement for all the good folks uh, listening at this we really uh, should time, do this uh, each at the beginning show. of the show but if you like what you're listening to and you listen to us on spotify if you can give us a rating in app it's super easy it just takes a couple of seconds it means the world to both of us and of course if you li- listen on apple if you can leave us a rating and a review that's equally as amazing because as we begin to better understand the mechanics the machinery behind the podcast industry one of the things that we do know that is a huge boost to our show is getting those ratings and review and i feel like a youtuber a vlogger but uh, if you can do that for us it means it means so much <laughs> to both of us and we read and cherish every review Absolutely. And if you want to get in touch, uh, easiest way to, uh, to send us a tweet at ScuderiaF1Pod. Unlike Mark, I did remember our Twitter, our Twitter handle, which is funny is because you spend more time on the official Twitter <laughs> than I do. But, you know, it's all good. As long as one of us remembers, that's the, the important thing. Or you can send it the old fashioned email way to ScuderiaF1Pod at gmail.com. 
And that's it, everyone. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening this week. And we'll be back on Sunday. So look out for that in your feed to end your weekend or start the new week. So until then, enjoy the weekend. Bye for now.